If you have a Bible this morning, let's open up to the New Testament letter of 1 Peter. If you have no idea where it is, feel free to use the table of contents. If you're using a pew Bible, the little black ESV pew Bible, it's on page 1203. <clears throat> 1203. Remember, again, if you have no idea where it is, just feel free to start. If you get to Hebrews in the New Testament, start going to the right a couple of books and you'll land in 1 Peter. We're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. We're taking a, just a one-week break, as Reverend Matthew picked up in John last week, and we're thankful for him and his exposition and his work, looking at the ministry of John the Baptist. He must increase, and I must decrease, and we, we're going to pick John back up next week, but this morning, we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. <clears throat> and as you're turning there this morning to 1 Peter chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 3 through 9. I want you to, back in 1933... In the wake of FDR and Congress taking the USA off the gold standard, a new independent government agency was created to, re to protect the investments of Americans. And it's to protect the investments of Americans that were deposited in banks. And that new government agency was the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or the FDIC. The stated insurance, insurance amount is $250,000 per depositor per bank. And the FDIC website reads, FDI insurance is backed by the full faith and credit of the United States government. Since the FDIC was established in 1933, no depositor has lost a penny of FDI insured funds. And you may have gone into a bank and you've seen the little sign there at the desk that says FDIC insured. Now I know when I read that last quote from the website, many of you muttered under your breath, yeah right. When I said, back by the full faith and credit of the United States government, some of y'all were like, uh-huh. Why? We know that the federal government is massively in debt, and as a society, we all suffer from a case of, I don't trust the government-itis, especially in this neck of the woods, it seems like. And we think about this, some of this may be well-founded because it only takes a cursory look at a history book to realize that all human institutions fail at some point. Because they're dependent on humans. You look at the mighty Roman Empire, it's fallen. You look at these, you, you read about these kingdoms that used to exist, and like King Nebuchadnezzar and all of these, you know, the Babylonians and the Assyrians that we read about in the Old Testament. We read about the, the might of Rome. Even as we're looking at a letter this morning that was written during the time of Nero, we still look back, and as mighty as that empire was, it's no longer with us anymore. As we think about the human, the frailty of human institutions because they're dependent on humans, recent studies have also shown that hope for future generations being better off than previous generations has been steadily declining for the past 15 years. I don't say that to be alarmist, I really don't, but simply to remind us this morning that the Christian's hope has always been tied to a kingdom that cannot be shaken and tied to a king that cannot be overthrown. We have this hymn, Hallelujah, What a Savior, that has a wonderful little line. It says, Put no confidence in princes, nor for help on man depend. He, speaking of mankind, he shall die to dust returning, and his purposes shall end. This has been a key witness of Christians throughout the ages. We trust God more than we trust pharaohs, monarchs, emperors, popes, presidents, politicians, economists, whatever it is. We trust in our Lord. We trust in the sovereign God of the universe more than we trust 
in anyone else because we know that these past leaders, they might come and they go, but eventually they die and are buried in the ground. And when they are buried, the hopes associated with them are buried too. Because dead people can only bring dead hope, right? You think about guys like Winston Churchill and his time during World War II, imperfect as he was, but leading a a people through just a a really tough time. And he kind of stood as a stalwart there. But he's dead and in the ground. And all the hopes associated with Winston Churchill died with him. For a few days after the events of Good Friday, it looked like the hope of God's people had been buried too. As the stone was rolled across the mouth of Jesus' tomb. And just for that brief moment of time, it looked like this man that said he was the resurrection and the life, he's now in a tomb like everybody else. What are we going to do? But thankfully, death did not have the final word, and the hopes associated with Christ and his kingdom have never failed. And so we have a living hope. We have an eternal hope because we have an eternal king. But how does that impact our lives today? How does that great truth claim, how does that impact our lives today? Let's find out. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Let's give attention to the reading of God's word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord does indeed stand forever. I'm very thankful for that, and I hope you are as well. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that every bit of it's true and that you've given it to us in love. Father, it helps us to understand who we are, who you are, and how we are to live in this world. And so, Father, strengthen our hearts this morning as we long to hear a word of grace and joy, as we long to hear a word of reassurance from your word that you have not forgotten about us, that you are not dead in the ground, you are alive and well, and that you are coming back. And so, Father, encourage our hearts this morning, and we ask and pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Now, as we look at 1 Peter, what we're looking at here is a letter that the Apostle Peter wrote from Rome between 60 and 68 AD, roughly, during the time of Nero. And so you can think about, was Nero a fan of Christians, yes or no? No, he was not, okay? And so this was written to a group of persecuted Christians, exhorting them to stand firm in the faith. You see that in chapter 5, verse 12, this exhortation to stand firm. And after a brief opening salutation in verses 1 and 2, which if you want to go back and look at it, it also mentions all three members of the Trinity in that uh, opening salutation. Peter immediately begins with an explanation of why Christians can have such a strong and sure foundation. We're going to get to that in just a moment. But do you remember back in ancient times when a new movie would come out? 
and we would all gather together in an actual theater without masks and social distancing. Do you remember back in the ancient days, back in the good old days when we could actually go to a movie theater and you could get the butter, the buttered popcorn that you knew you shouldn't be eating, but it's just kind of what you do? You remember those days when you could drink an 800-ounce Coke <laughs> right there in your seat? And you could hear the, the bass reverberating around. There's just something about going to a movie theater with your friends and seeing a movie on the big screen. And back in 2019, a movie, that, a movie arc that took over a decade to tell came to fruition when Avengers Endgame came out. You may have gone and seen that in the theater. I did. It was awesome. It was a culmination of 23 Marvel movies that started back in 2008 with Iron Man 1. And I'll do my best not to spoil it, but the Avengers had been fighting back against a very strong and deadly enemy, a guy named Thanos, who wanted to wipe out 50% of all life in the universe. And towards the end of the movie, you see Captain America, who was the first Avenger, going head-to-head against Thanos and just getting beaten badly. Thanos had also even beaten up the Incredible Hulk. You had seen the Hulk come in and you know Hulk smash and he usually just comes and starts breaking things and all of a sudden Thanos like picks him up and body slams him like who is this guy? Who does that to the Hulk? And on YouTube you can find audience reaction videos that were recorded live in the theaters in the moments leading up to and during this final battle. I mean think for over a decade all of these movies have been leading up to this one point and now we're at the final battle and everybody knows it. And what you had was some people that just kind of took some uh, audience reaction videos. And for a moment, during that battle, the outlook looked bleak. And the entire theater fell silent as, as fans held their collective breath as it looked like the forces of evil had triumphed. You ever been in a movie like that? Or you ever been like the last kick of a football game? It either goes in or it doesn't. You either win or you don't. And everybody kind of just <gasps> holds their breath and it's deadly quiet. That's the way it was. Then, in the movie, something happened that caused the audience to erupt in loud cheers of joy because their hope had been restored, and they rejoiced together. And you hear a whole theater like, yes! You hear, you know, grown men like crying like little children, like, this is amazing! And they get up and they erupt together. We've all experienced this before at the movies, at ball games, whatever it is. It's one of the things we've missed over the past year if we've been separated from each other, waiting, wondering if life is ever going to return to normalcy, if the pandemic would ever loosen its grip. Just those times of just being together. That's why this is so good this morning. I'm just together. Remember, biblical hope is not wishing for a future outcome. It's not saying, well, I hope it rains later on today, or I hope it doesn't rain later on today. It's being certain of certainties, even when the outlook is bleak and life gets hard. Here's what Tim Keller said in his little book that I plugged just a minute ago. He said, The Christian hope exceeded such quavering, wishful thinking in every way. The biblical word elpida, translated as the weaker verb in the English hope, means profound certainty. If you look at verse 3 as we open up in our text this morning, Peter is writing to a group of persecuted Christians and he reminds them of the certainty of the hope that's grounded in the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a living hope because it flows from the reality of a living Savior in real space and time. And for 2,000 years, the watching world has scoffed at Christians clinging to the reality of the resurrection of Jesus and his promised return. 
And they see God's people as simpletons and ignorant and backwards for believing in such unscientific nonsense. How in the world could you possibly believe that a guy came back from the dead? And how in the world do you possibly live your life in such cognitive dissonance, looking and hoping for his return? What in the world are you doing? You're throwing your life away. But for we who know Christ, we know that this is not just some unscientific nonsense. It is our true and lasting grounded hope through all aspects of our lives, in the highs and the lows. We trust in a risen Savior. Here's what Stephen Um said. I, I roll this out every Easter. It's a great quote. He said, The resurrection is the truth on which everything else hinges. Without it, Christian ministry is pointless. Personal faith is ineffective. God's character is called into question. Christians are still in need of salvation. Any sense of future hope is removed. And our present experience is meaningless. On the other hand, if Christ did indeed rise from the dead, then the opposite's true. Regardless of whether you claim Christ as Lord, we all must deal with the historical reality of His resurrection and what it means for the world around us. The, the historical weight and evidence for the resurrection of Christ is absolutely overwhelming in antiquity. So the question then becomes, what do you do with it? Why, how does that impact your life? It says either it's of absolutely no use or it means absolutely everything. What you can't do is yawn your way through it and go, eh, what time's lunch? That's what you can't do. It either means absolutely nothing and it's all a lie or it means absolutely everything and it changes the way we see our world. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important where you just, eh. So what do we do with this? The big question that we're going to ask this morning is, how does this living hope change everything for us today? We're going to look at two points. Number one, a living hope strengthens our confidence in God's provision for us. This is going to be basically verses 3 through 5. And our second point, a living hope strengthens our confidence in God's purposes in us. Verses 6 through 9. Okay, so let's look at our first point. If you're a note-taking type of person, it is a living hope strengthens our confidence in God's provision for us, verses 3 through 5. Now, as I've mentioned before, as your theology, which is a fancy word for just the study of God, as your theology deepens, your doxology, your praise to God, deepens as well. And verse 3 is a great example of these two things being tied together, that as your theology deepens, your doxology deepens. Peter begins with a word of blessing towards God the Father, a doxology, because God is the ultimate and eternal fount of all blessings. Why? Look at how he starts. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a statement of praise. But why? Here comes the theology part where the two are wed together. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So bless you, O Lord, because this is true. I understand this, my doxology, my praise to you is informed by this great statement. And the Greek verb anagenesos, translated caused us to be born again, is unique to 1 Peter. It's also found later in verse 23, but this verse is packed with gracious gospel truth and don't miss it. It says, he has caused us to be born again. Here's what Bill Harrell, a friend of mine, I actually realized he had this commentary when I used to live in Virginia. He's a pastor in Norfolk, Virginia. I was like, oh, it's that guy. Here's what Bill said. 
Peter makes clear to us what motivated God in blessing us so greatly. It was not that God found worthiness or loveliness in any of his people, nor was the Lord prompted to assist those who were struggling to save themselves. The divine motive in the accomplishment and application of salvation is sheer mercy. Now, what we're talking about here is spiritual regeneration. If you go back a couple of weeks, we look at Jesus talking with Nicodemus. And what we saw is this undeserved new life given to dead, rusty cars like us. You remember that illustration from back in ancient days before the missions, missions month? I said, I've got these old cars that are just sitting in the woods on the way back to my house. And we said, that's us, like the valley of dry bones, dead in our sins and trespasses, unable to save ourselves. That is the state of humanity. But yet God, being rich in mercy, even with the great love in which he loved us, while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he came and made us alive together with Christ. God alone, by sheer grace alone, has given believers new life in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. You can't earn it. You can't merit it. You can't twist God's arm to give it to you. It's a gift of divine mercy, and it is the grounds of our hope in the gospel of grace. This God who pursues and goes after broken enemies, people that are dead in their trespasses and sins, and just like the valley of the dry bones, he says, I'm going to remove that dead heart of stone, and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh, and I'm going to do all of it by grace. You don't deserve any of it. And because that's happened, God's people have a new status. The theological word for that is justification. We have a new relationship. The theological word for that is adoption. We have a new power at work within us. That's called sanctification. And we have a new destiny, which is glorification. They're all tied together. Without this divine mercy, though, we would have no hope because we would still be dead in our sins and trespasses and under his divine wrath and judgment. This is why the resurrection is such good news. Because according to verse 3 and verse 4, Christ's resurrection is the conduit of this mercy and the guarantee of it. Peter calls this a living hope because we've been made alive with Christ and now have a real of substantial joy set before us that can never be taken away because it is kept securely in heaven and guarded by God's power, not yours. Isn't that good to know? That this great hope, this living hope that has been secured by the resurrection, it is kept and guarded by God's power, not yours. He says, I've got you. I got you. It's true. Look at verse 4. This is the imperishable inheritance that Peter's talking about. Look at what he says there in verse 4. He says, you have received this through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfailing, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. He said, all this is kept by a sovereign and powerful Lord. Everything has been impacted by the fall, and it doesn't take very long as we look around in this world and all we see is corruption and decay. We see moral decay, social decay, relational decay, not just in the society at large, but within our own hearts. Everything that we know has been impacted by the fall, and deep, deep down we know that nothing in this world can truly satisfy us. We can't even trust our own hearts. We know that we ourselves are going to let ourselves down, much less everything else. And so it is with a great and certain hope that Christians look beyond themselves in this life towards something greater and more solid. 
as Hebrews calls it, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. What is this inheritance called? Okay, so we got this idea of there's this inheritance. What's this inheritance called? Verses 5 and 9, look. Been guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Look at verse 9. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's tied up in that. That's the salvation that we're talking about here. The Greek word there is soteria, deliverance or safety. Note, this verse says nothing about name it and claim it wealth in this life. It doesn't say that all this is just going to immediately happen for you and life is going to be rosy as soon as you become a Christian. It doesn't mean that at all. It says that what we look for is actually an inheritance beyond this world. Come what may, there might be zero dollars in the checking account, but if you are in Christ, your status in heaven is secure. Life may be really rough here. It may feel like death. It might feel like pain. But yet, if you are in Christ, there is a true and living hope that is kept and guarded for you. So we as Christians, we, we don't look to the world. We don't name it and claim it and say, God, you owe this to me. We really know what God does owe us because of our sin. He owes us wrath and judgment. But yet, he's made a way for us to be made right with him through his son, through his death and resurrection. But how do we receive this? How do we receive this salvation, if that's what we're talking about here? How do we receive it? We receive it by faith alone and Christ alone, as revealed in the Scripture alone. And if you are here this morning and looking to anything else besides Christ for salvation, I've got some really bad news for you. It's going to fail in the end. It is going to fail. Your politician is either going to die or get voted out of office. The money's going to run out. Your Your looks will fade. Trust me, I know. You may get fired from work, that job may get shipped overseas, the company may get sold. If you're relying on your intellect for salvation, it eventually will fail you. Your grades, you're going to mess up, trust me. Social influence, it's going to fade. Even your religious performance. If you're looking to anything else other than Christ and Christ alone this morning for what really matters and what really saves you and what really makes you right. If you're looking for if you're looking to Christ, uh, if you're looking to anything other than Christ it's called idolatry. And I as a minister of the gospel call you to repent. Turn from your idolatry. The heart of idolatry is we can take even a good thing and make it the ultimate thing. And that ultimate thing is reserved. There's only one throne in our heart and you can guess who it was designed to sit there. It's Jesus Christ the King. So flee from your idolatry. You may think that it's going to work out the way that it is. It won't. It's going to fail you. You need Jesus there in the throne of your heart. And then it impacts absolutely everything. Because suddenly you don't see your money or your intellect or your social as the ultimate thing. What you see it as a tool that God may may have given to you to be a blessing to others. You can use it for his glory, not your own. As we said, those things are not bad on their own, but they have no power beyond the tomb, and they never secure the salvation that Peter's talking about here. We've always said you never see a hearse hauling a U-Haul, do you? You can't take it with you. Now, I know it's very easy in the South to dress up for Easter, to play the part, to hear about the resurrection, but still live as though Christ is in the tomb, because deep down you only trust yourself and what you can see, and you live as though you're your own Savior. I'm good at this too. 
It's an entirely different thing, this gift that's given from above that we looked at the spiritual birth with Nicodemus. It's an entirely different thing to see your need for grace and mercy and flee to Jesus as your Savior and cling to the reality of the resurrection. And if this is true, this living hope frees us to think less of ourselves and exalt Christ, as Reverend Matthew told us last week. Our living hope is grounded in and flows from our Lord Jesus Christ. His name is mentioned four times in verses 1 through 3. Did you notice that? Four times Jesus Christ is, is lifted. But the, but the reason that we're asking this morning is why should we care about any of this? Because the empty tomb changed everything. Grace changes everything. A living hope changes everything. It frees us up to love and serve others. It frees us up to fail and keep trying. It frees us up to rejoice, to rest, to give of what we have freely. It frees us up even to suffer well. Wait, what? It frees us up to suffer well. Point two, a living hope strengthens our confidence in God's purposes in us. So it doesn't just strengthen our confidence in God's provision for us, this new living hope, this new way to see the world. It actually also gives us confidence and strengthens that confidence in God's purposes in us. Verses 6 through 9. Think about Peter's original audience whom he called elect exiles in verse 1. Christians under the thumb of the powerful Roman Empire and the ruthless Emperor Nero. Peter reminded them that no matter what, their gracious salvation could not be stolen, destroyed, or ruined because it was, safe, kept, it was kept safe in Christ for all eternity by God's immutable power. No emperor, no government could seize it. No emperor, no government could beat it out of them. It was safe with them. This unwavering confidence freed them to live differently in a fallen world because despite the pressure, they possessed a living hope in the promises of God. And so as we look at this, we realize that the Bible was written in real space and time. The human heart has changed 0% since the fall. And so these words given to this group back in the first century still matter for us today. So as we wait for the Lord's return, as we wait and as we live as elect exiles driven from our true homeland... Let us cling to Christ and what he has accomplished on the cross for us. Let us live as children of God, not as children of the world. Let this resurrection power change the way we see our world. Change the way we see our lives. Remember, the thing that you can't do is just shrug your shoulders through it. It either, it either means absolutely everything or it means nothing. And all I'm asking you to do is wrestle with it this morning. This stuff matters. Let us put us how do we how do we live as children of God and not as children of the world? Let's put aside pettiness. Let's bury old hatchets. Let's speak words of encouragement instead of careless passive aggressive comments. Let us put aside gossip. Let us put aside pride. Let us put aside wishy-washy religion that is nothing more than a hollow shell covering our own self-salvation project. Let us put aside our own agendas. Let us put aside selfishness. Let us, free from, let us flee from our own sin. Let us forgive others for their sins against us. And let us rest in the grace of Christ together. Let's do it together. I'm speaking to myself too. I don't, I'm tired of my sin. I get weary of my pride and my arrogance and having to get up here every single week, every Sunday as we confess our sins. And the same three are at the top of the list every week. I'm so weary of it. But yet, God is good. 
And he's kind and he's forgiving and he's gracious. Let us hold fast to each other as a local body of believers and encourage each other all the more as we see the day of our Lord drawing near. If you're here this morning and you are looking for a church home, we would love to have you here. If not, let us help you get plugged in. You need other people in your life. An independent Christian is an oxymoron. We were built to be together. You need a local church, not because we're a bunch of self-righteous busybodies, but because you need somebody to love you and care for you and say, how are you doing? And how is your love for Jesus growing? If you think back over the past year, how has your love and devotion and understanding of Christ deepened in this past year? Are you growing where you are planted? Let us encourage each other as we move forward. Verse, t- verse 6 tells us that we will all continue to face hardship and trials in this life. Let's encourage each other and point each other to Christ. Life is hard enough without having to endure friendly fire from within the family of God. It's hard enough. Let's encourage each other. We all have things that we wish we could have done differently. We all have things that we regret. We all have secrets that we're ashamed of. We all have things that we look back over the past year, myself included, conversations that I should have had, phone calls that I should have made, visits that I should have made, and I just wake up every week and wonder whatever happened. It's Friday again. Where did that week go? And I look back over this past year and go, God, it feels like that year just evaporated. People I haven't seen, I haven't laid eyes on people in months. And I just feel like the worst pastor ever. But I have to go to the Lord and say, you know what? Your grace is sufficient. And all I can do is say I'm sorry. And as we move up out of this thing, let's hang out. <laughs> let's invite each other over. Let's encourage one another. God, Look at what God's doing. It's exciting stuff. We all have things that we wish we could have done differently. We all have things we regret. We all have secrets that we're ashamed of. Yes, even that one. But guess what? I've got news. Christ is risen. He is risen from the grave. And those who trust Him by faith have a living hope in His love and His mercy and His forgiveness and His grace. Let's come up out of this past year that felt like a tomb with renewed resurrection hope and the power of the gospel to change our town, our families, our own hearts because Christ is risen from the grave. May the resurrection change the way we see ministry in our own town. Let's trust Christ with the future of His church and let's get busy with the work He's called us to do, which is to make disciples and to be faithful all under the umbrella of His resurrection power. Remember what He said to His disciples after He had risen from the grave and He's with them and He's about to leave them. He said, I am with you always until the end of the age. I'm with you always. It's true. It matters. It gives us confidence Verse, tells, verse 7 tells us that even the hardships we, faith in this, we face in this life are ultimately for our good and for our God's glory. Boy, that's easier said than done, isn't it? Why? Our faith is tested. It's refined. It's strengthened as we wait for Christ's return. And we show the world that we have a lasting hope beyond the grave that can never be taken away. You know one of the most just honest prayers you can pray when life gets tough is, Lord, help me. <laughs> Lord, help me. It doesn't have to be flowery. You just realize that you need a voice from outside of yourself. And you say, Lord, help me, please. Nothing reveals our true heart idols like trials and hardship and suffering and even discomfort. 
God, ta- God calls us to trust Him all the more day by day and to keep being faithful. It's like when you go and you do a little bit of weight training. You, you start with, with lighter weights and they get heavier, but you do a lot of reps over a long period of time. And what does it lead to strength? That's what we're talking about. The muscle of faith. Pick it up, operate it a little bit. Over the course of time, the Lord strengthens us. Philippians 1, 6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Romans 5, 1 through 5. Almost done. Hang with me. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. What? Knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So what's this look like? Even when life gets hard, what's that look like? Verses 8 and 9. I told you I'd get there. Look at verses 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, speaking of Jesus Christ, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. A living faith is a sure faith. A living hope is a sure hope. A living Christ secures a living salvation that is true and sure. Christ died a real death on a real cross, was buried in a real tomb, and really rose victorious over death in real space and time. It did happen. We cannot flinch on that for a second. It matters 1 Corinthians 15, look at what Paul said. He said, if it didn't happen, then we might as well go home. I am in the worst job choice ever if this didn't happen. (laughs) So if the resurrection didn't happen, is anybody hiring? (laughs) But here's what I can do. I can stand here knowing that Christ has risen from the dead. It is true. It really happened. Why did all of this happen? Why should you matter? That was the big question. Why should we care about the resurrection? Why should we care that Jesus died a real death on a real cross, was buried in a real tomb, and really rose victorious over death in real space and time? Why should we care? It matters because if you were in Christ, your sin could really be put away so that you could really walk in God's love and have a real and living hope in this life, regardless of the circumstances. All of this was planned before the foundation of the world by the mercy of God the Father through the resurrection of His Son and sealed by the Holy Spirit. If you are in Christ, then the promises of verse 4 are certainly true. Verse 4, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Biblical hope is being certain of certainties. The big question for you this morning is, is this your living hope? Is this your true and lasting hope today? Do you really believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that come what may, come what may, you are secure and safe in Christ? That you have recognized your need for Him? That you are a sinner? That you have fallen short of God's holy mark? But yet, God has made a way. And it is through his son, Jesus Christ, who really lived and died, really died on a cross, really rose again. And if that's true, which it is. If that's true, 
It changes everything. It changes absolutely everything. So what's the call? What's the call as we go out? What's the one song I want you singing as you're heading out? So what? Go, O people of God, and walk in the confidence of a risen Savior. Walk in confidence in what He is doing. In your own life, in the life of your family, trust Him with that hard stuff. God is at work. Go walk in confidence. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and your kindness and your grace towards us in Christ. Thank you that all the promises of God find their yes and amen in you, O Lord, and we just stand in awe of that. Father, we thank you that you sent your Son to die in our place. Substitutionary atonement is the heart of the gospel. We could not save ourselves. We needed somebody to do it for us, and not just anybody. Your perfect Son, whom you willingly gave, and he willingly went to the cross, but also knowing full well that he would rise again on the third day. All of it planned before the foundation of the world for redemption for people like us. And as we confessed at the beginning of the service, though we were once not a people, we are now your people because you have brought us near, and that changes absolutely everything. Father, help us to flee from all of these other things that we're looking to to really bring us worth and satisfaction. Those things that we look and go, yes, this is the thing that makes me matter. And Father, if we have anything else in that blank other than Jesus Christ, we repent. Father, help us to have your son Jesus at the very center of our lives as we look to him, knowing that he has done everything for us. And Father, help us as a church to walk in confidence in your resurrection. Lord, give us a vision for how you want us to reach out to our community. We do not just want to be that quiet church up on the hill that doesn't do anything. Lord, help us to love our neighbors. Help us to reach out. Help us to share the hope of the gospel. Because if it's true, it changes absolutely everything and your grace is real. Thank you that the stone was rolled away. And because of that, we can have a living and true and eternal joy and hope in you because it's grounded in your promises. And it changes everything. So, Lord, we thank you. We pray and ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.